Good morning. My name is Ryan Kuferschmidt. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. You can grab your Bibles again and turn to John 18. We'll be looking at that together uh, this morning. Throughout my life, I've had the opportunity to work alongside my dad quite a few times, and oftentimes we'd be doing wood projects, uh, different projects, variety of things, and, you know, every once in a while, something wouldn't turn out quite right. And, you know, maybe the gap, there's a little gap there, or, you know, we broke something, um, and it just, it wasn't quite right. And so my dad had a couple of things he would say when we messed up on a project. So one of his favorite things to say was, well, you can't see it from my house, which is especially funny because usually it was on his house that we were working on it. Um, he would say, uh, it's good enough for government work, so no, no bashing you if you work for the government. Um, if you do, you probably know some of your uh, fellow workers that might fit that trend. And then uh, I think my favorite is he would say, hmm, we'd be looking at a board that just didn't quit, uh, fit quite right. It was a little too short. And he'd say, man, I, I cut it three times, and it's still too short. I can't figure out how to get it to fit in there right. And so he, I don't know if that's like a Midwest thing to make jokes about your mistakes in wood projects and things like that, but uh, he would joke about those things, and those have stuck with me. And when you're working on projects and stuff, you can cover those types of things up. You know, you can put a little caulk in the, in the gap. You can paint over the wood chip. Uh, there's different ways that you can, you know, make it look right, even if it's not right. And if you've done wood projects, you know uh, some of those tricks to do those things. And so I share that uh, just to, to say that we all make mistakes. We all mess up in life. Um, we all fall short of God's glory. We're all sinners. We know that from Romans 3.23. But as we look at Peter in our text this morning, we see him denying his relationship to Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus, this zealous follower, disciple of Jesus, we see him saying, I, I don't know him. I'm not one of his followers. And so we tend to look at Peter and say, well, at least I, I don't fail like Peter. At least I don't say, uh, I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to submit to you this morning that we all have failed just like Peter. Maybe we haven't verbally uh, denied the Lord Jesus as a follower of him, but in our actions we have shown our unbelief in what he said. We have to not denied that he is the true Savior by not believing him. Through our unbelief we have uh, made it appear as if we're not a follower of Jesus, that Jesus isn't the Savior, that he hasn't changed our lives. And so, this I don't know if this is an encouragement this morning or not, but I'm coming to you as a fellow failure to say, it's okay that you're a failure. We're all failures. You're a failure. Everyone around you is a failure. I'm a failure. And the good news, that's the bad news, the good news is that Jesus never fails. And that even while we see Peter denying his relationship to Jesus Christ, Jesus is on the path to provide salvation and forgiveness for Peter's sin. And so this morning we'll see that, you know, unlike the wood projects when we make mistakes, we don't just want to cover those up and act like they're not there and kind of ignore them and say, well, at least I can't see that sin from my house. 
we want to acknowledge that yes, we, we fail. We fall short of God's glory all the time, even as believers. And the good news of that is that it's okay that we fail. We don't want to try to fail, obviously, but when we do fail, like Peter does in our text, we need to come to Jesus for restoration because he has made a way for us to receive forgiveness for what we've done. And so it harkens back to 1 John where he talks about uh, we should come to Jesus and confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so because of Christ's faithful pursuit of following the will of the Father to accomplish salvation for us, we can now have a relationship with God, and when we break that relationship through our failure, we can come to him and ask for forgiveness and restore our fellowship with God. And so the question for us this morning is, you know, not are we going to fail, but when we fail, what should we do? And what should Peter do in our text? And the theme is, come to Jesus for restoration when you fail. Okay, so I hope I haven't discouraged you, and I don't want you to uh, disengage uh, with the failure talk, because each of us, deep down inside, we know that we're failures. We know that we aren't perfect, and we don't do everything perfectly. Um, Again, maybe we haven't denied Jesus. Maybe we haven't said, I am not a follower of Jesus, and done that in fear and unbelief, but through our actions of lying, cheating, stealing, uh, all these things, we admit um, in those moments that we are not trusting in Jesus, that we're not trusting that his way is best. We're showing a heart of unbelief. And when we do those things, we're, we're letting Jesus down. We're not following his way, and we're failures. And we need to come to Jesus for restoration. And so as we look down through this text, uh, don't condemn Peter. He, he is wrong, he fails, But don't condemn him in a high seat of, well, at least I don't deny Jesus, but rather look at the heart behind his actions and acknowledge that your heart, oftentimes we have that same unbelief in our hearts to lead us to deny Jesus through our actions. And so we need to come to Jesus for restoration when we fail. And so as we look at our text here, we see that This is the first of two trials. So if you remember last week, uh, Jesus is in the garden uh, with his disciples. And in verse 4, it says, Knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you speaking? And so Jesus, he wasn't hiding. He came out and he met this army of over 200 guys. And remember when they asked him, they said, We're seeking Jesus. They all fell down as he said, I am. And it's just an amazing power, a picture of Christ's power and authority in that situation. And so we're going to see that his power and authority and his submission to the Father continue into our text as we come in to verse 12. And so as you see in verse 12, it says, Then the attachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And so the, I think the picture we're meant to see here of Jesus is that, yes, he's going willingly, but he's going uh, bound and arrested, okay? So Jesus isn't going to his death looking like the king that he is. He's going to his death looking like a sacrificial animal. He looks like a lamb. And so in the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice animals, 
the high priest would go and he would offer a sacrifice first for his own sins and then a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the perfect lamb without blemish who willingly went to the cross to die for our failures. He didn't run. He didn't hide. He he stood up to meet them, and he, with all authority and all power, gave himself over for this path. And he did that because he knew that Peter would fail him. He knew that we would fail him, and he knew that he had to pay for those failures on the cross. And so look at Jesus here as the person with all authority, all power, and he allows these, these people that have just seen that they don't have the power to subdue him on their own, he allows them to arrest him and bind them and bind him. And uh, he goes forward. And look at verse 13 where they take him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And so there in verse 13, we see that Jesus is led to Annas, okay? So you got to focus in with me here for a second because this is kind of confusing. So Jesus is led to Annas, the high priest here, for he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, okay? And then if you go down to verse 24, it says, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And down below, it looks like Caiaphas the high priest is talking to Jesus. He's the one addressing Jesus. And so there's, there's kind of confusion here of, is Caiaphas the high priest or is Annas the high priest? And which one of them is the one that's talking to Jesus first? Uh, because it, there's some confusion of which one of them is the high priest. And so what's going on here is that Caiaphas was originally the high priest. And then he had five sons, and they were all high priests after him. And his son-in-law was a high priest, Annas. And so there's kind of multiple high priests here. And Caiaphas is supposedly like the highest high priest because he's like the dad of them all. And so there's this weird high priest structure going on within the authorities here in uh, the Jewish leadership. And so we're going to see some confusion as we go through here of is Jesus talking to Annas or Caiaphas or which one is overhearing Uh, this trial of Jesus. Okay, so we're left wondering, which one of these men is the high priest? Which one of these is in charge of this trial? Okay, so as we read down, I think it'll become clearer. In verse 14, we see there that now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this is obviously ironic because Caiaphas he advises, yeah, let's, let's take Jesus and let's have him die, this one man die, for the people. And now obviously Caiaphas isn't thinking of the gospel that the Father has planned here of Jesus going and dying for the sins of everybody, but he, that's what he advises, this man who is an opponent of Jesus, who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's saying, I got a great idea, guys. Let's have Jesus be the one man that dies for the people. And so this is almost comical to us, because as we look at this, we're like, yeah, that's the Father's plan. That's a great idea. But Caiaphas, he doesn't see that. For him, it's a way to get rid of Jesus. But for God, it's a way to provide salvation for all of us, 
for the one man to die for the people. And so as we look down through kind of these introductory verses to the trial, we see Jesus willingly submitting himself to be arrested, to be bound. He willingly submits himself to this unfair trial where they've already made up their minds, where Caiaphas is already advising that they put Jesus to death. But it's all according to the Father's plan. So we can remember back all the way to John chapter 1 when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we see the fulfillment of that here. Jesus is submitting himself as the sacrificial lamb to come forward and be killed for the sins of the people. One man to die so that the many can go free. One man to die so that many don't have to die. And so we see in these first couple verses that Jesus is the lamb sacrificed for us. He gave up himself. He didn't run from his, his, the Father's plan to have him be sacrificed. And so as we think about Jesus as the Lamb of God sacrificed for the sins of the world, for our sins and for your sins, I, I don't know if you've ever... I'm assuming like back, back in the day when the Israelites were doing this, and I don't think that the little lambs went willingly to be killed. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure they, they had them tied up. There was multiple people dragging the lamb in to, to make sure that they didn't get away or whatever. And I can remember when I was a kid, our dog, we had to trim their fingernails or paws or claws or whatever you call them. And it took multiples of us to trim the dog's nails because they didn't like it. it. It it would give them a little bit of pain. And so usually my dad or me would be holding on to the dog and then the other one would have the paw coming through their arm and like holding on to it with their whole body like trying to clip their nails. And the dog was just, it, it was good for them. They, they needed to have their, their claws trimmed. But the dog resisted. The dog didn't want to uh, be in pain like that. And so it's just amazing when we look at Jesus Christ, he willingly went to be crucified. He wasn't made to go. He chose to go. He submitted himself to being arrested and bound. Uh, He submitted himself to the evil plans of, of Caiaphas to put him to death because he knew that Caiaphas didn't really know what was going on. He knew that this was the Father's plan to provide salvation for the people. And so as we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, sent to take away the sins of the world, we have to decide, are we going to trust in him? Is he truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Is he the one who came forward to die for our sins and rise again, the perfect Son of God? Is he that Lamb? Because if you're doubting that in your mind, then you're not trusting in him for your salvation. Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. And when we believe in him, we're forgiven of our sins. The wrath of God. Remember back to verse 11. It says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? So Jesus, knowing all things, knowing what would come, he's willing to take the cup of wrath that the Father has prepared for him. The wrath against our failures, our sins. He's willing to take that cup, submit himself to that, raise it to his lips, and drink all of it. He wants to do that because he loves us, and it's the plan of the Father, and he's willing to go through with it. And so if you haven't trusted in Christ, 
There's no other way that you can be saved. The only way that the wrath for your sin can be removed from your account, that you can be uh, set free from your sin, have your sin removed upon the Lamb of God, is to trust in Jesus Christ. Because he did that. He went to the cross and he paid for that. And so we have to come to him and believe. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you uh, to come to Christ and believe in him today. He is the willing lamb, the lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. So now we've seen these introductory verses that are bringing us now into the Jewish portion of Christ's trial. Okay, so next week we'll look at uh, more of the, the Gentile trial with Pilate. But today we're just looking at the Jewish trial. So as you look down through uh, these verses, there's verses 15 through 18, where we look at uh, Peter, and then we look at Jesus in verses 19 through 24, and then we go back to Peter again in verses 25 through 27. So there's kind of three scenes here. But what I want you to see is the author's intent with these stories, okay? So on one hand, you have Peter coming into the court, And on the other hand, you have Jesus coming into the court and going to stand before the high priest, okay? And the author wants us to not see these as separate events, but concurrent events that are occurring at the same time. That's why he splits it in the middle and uh, follows verse 25 with now or meanwhile, okay? So the, the picture that we're supposed to have in our minds is at the very moment Jesus is saying, ask one of my disciples what my teaching is. They'll testify about me. They'll tell you what my teaching is and my identity as the Son of God. At that very moment, we have Peter, on the other hand, saying, I don't know Jesus. I'm not one of his followers. And so at the very moment, Peter is denying that he's a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying, yeah, ask one of my disciples. They'll tell you what my teaching is. And so Peter isn't just denying that he's a follower of Jesus. He's letting Jesus down at the hour that he needs him the most. At the hour when Jesus is placing his his future on the testimony of his followers. So this is a big failure by Peter. Okay, Because as we read down through here, we see Jesus uh, relying upon the testimony of his followers uh, for the, the turnout of this trial. And Peter lets him down. And this is going to help us as we think through this, because oftentimes we think, oh man, I failed God again, I sinned, how, how can I come to him again and say, I let you down again? But the truth is, is that Jesus predicted that Peter would fail him. And when he knew that Peter would do that, he knew in the heart of Peter that there was unbelief there, that he would deny him. In the mind of Jesus, he was planning his way to the cross to pay for that. And so, in our failure, we can be greatly comforted because Jesus knows that we're failures. He knows that we need him. And so, there's great hope for Peter in this text. There's great hope for us because Jesus died for failures. He died for failures like you and me. And so, whatever you're facing today, I hope you know that you are a failure and that you need Jesus. Because if we're not ready to admit that we're failures, then we're not ready to, to rely on Jesus and his forgiveness, okay? So think through your, in your own mind, uh, how might I grow in my trust of Jesus? Where, you know, God, show me where I have unbelief in my heart to where I would, in my actions, act 
like I'm not a follower of Jesus. And help me to see those and to bring those to you and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, I failed you, but I know that you will forgive me. So as we work through this, think through those ideas with me. And so now in the next couple verses, we're going to see Peter's actions as he comes into the court in verse 25. And so look there with me. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So follow with me the events here. Uh, Peter and probably John, he doesn't like to identify himself, so he's probably the other apostle. They're going with Jesus uh, as he's been arrested, and they're, they're going with him. And then John has a relationship with the high priest. And so he's allowed to go in with Jesus. And so John is inside the court with Jesus, and Peter is outside, okay? So that's, that's where we have it in verse 16. It says, but Peter stood at the door outside. So Peter hasn't been allowed into the courtyard yet. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. And so look with me at verse 16 and just understand that the, the writer points out Peter's location on purpose. You know, he's not just saying this to fill up space because he has to finish a paper. He, he's writing this because it's important details that helps us to understand where Peter's at in this. And so from the beginning in verse 16, we see that, but Peter stood at the door outside. So immediately the, the writer sets Peter apart from Jesus. He says that Peter is outside the door while Jesus is inside. Peter is not with Jesus right now. He's outside the door. And so we see the contrast of locations pointed out. And then eventually John comes back and helps Peter get in the door because uh, he has that relationship with the high priest. And so as Peter enters, he receives his first question of uh, his encounter with uh, the high priest's servants. It says in verse 17, Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Are you not also one of this man's disciples? Are you? And he said, I am not. So you've got to imagine you know, putting yourself in Peter's location here. Jesus is... You know, they've already planned to put Jesus to death. And, uh, you know, Peter's looking at this like, well, you know, at least I can save my own skin now that this has all gone south. And so Peter is fearing his own death. He's not believing in the teaching of Jesus that he's been instructed in of how the plan of the Father is going to go. And he's afraid. And so he stands outside. And then when he's brought in in question, he says, I am not. I am not a follower of Jesus. And so we see that Peter is struggling to believe the plan of the Father. He's struggling to believe what Jesus said would happen. And so Peter, who's, who's this insider, he's one of the closest disciples of Jesus. You know, one of the most zealous. The guy who, a few minutes ago, drew his dagger to take on 200 plus men. We see him now cowering in fear of a servant girl who asks him, if he knows Jesus, if he's one of his followers. And he denies it, and he says no. And so we see in Peter's heart that he has unbelief in his heart. He's not believing that what Jesus said is true, that this is the plan, that everything's going to be okay because Jesus is going to go and pay the price and come back from the death again. And so Peter denies being a follower of Jesus. 
And we see his further uh, actions laid out of his unbelief in verse 18. It says, Now the servant and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So first we see Peter standing outside while Jesus is inside. And then we see Peter, instead of going to be with Jesus, now that he's in the court, he's standing with the opponents of Jesus, warming himself. He's not with Jesus. His unbelief has led him to act like an outsider. It's led him to look and to commune with the enemy, the opponents of Jesus, the ones who have just, it's the same, uh, the same people who had just come and arrested Jesus. Now, Peter is standing with them at the fire, warming himself. Do you understand where Peter has placed himself? We, we had that picture last week of Jesus coming out of the garden and all the soldiers coming, and Jesus knocks them all down, and it's like, man, maybe some of those guys want to come join Jesus now that they've seen his authority and his power. But here we see Peter, he's gone to the other side. His, his unbelief has led him to look like an opponent of Jesus, look like someone who is against Jesus. And so he's gone from the zealous follower of Jesus to not believing and not standing beside his Savior and standing instead by the charcoal fire to warm himself as verse 18 points out very oddly that um, they had made a fire of coals and stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. And so we see that when we have unbelief, when we don't trust the words of Christ, when we don't trust the Father's plan, our unbelief leads us to act like outsiders. So even if we're followers of Jesus, if we choose not to believe in what Jesus has said, that's going to lead us to act like outsiders. It's going to lead us to look like we're not followers of Jesus. And so I try to think of an example of you know, when this might happen in our lives, and I think of children. So if you're around, especially young men sometimes, you often have good intentions for them as their parents. You, know, you don't want them to eat the whole bag of candy in one sitting. And so what do you do? You remove the candy and say, oh, it's not good for you to eat all of that candy. Right? And that's true. And we're, we're, being, we're doing a good thing as a parent, but does the child usually believe that that is in their best interest? No. <laughs> Uh, they usually freak out and panic and scream and fall on the floor and bang around. No offense to you kids. We, adults do the same thing. It's just sometimes we're muted. And they just they lose their minds because they don't believe that their parent is acting in their best interest. They don't believe uh, the father's plan that the parent should have authority over the child to help them learn how to live, learn how to trust in God, learn how to walk in the world that he created. And so, usually what the child does is they'll go crazy, and especially young boys, I don't have a lot of experience with little girls, they'll, they'll actually lash out in anger, and they'll start hitting you, and they'll throw stuff at you. And there's this moment where you have become enemies, your opponents. They're, they're your child, they're your blood, and they're, they're losing their minds and attacking you because you took away the bag of candy, okay? So if you're a, child or a parent of boys, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but that's the same thing that Peter's doing here. The same heart of unbelief is that what Jesus is doing here 
is not in my best interest. I know better, and so I'm going to act like an opponent of Jesus. I'm going to act like an outsider because I don't believe that what he says is best for me. And so this is obviously applicable to our life because it's easy to look at what Jesus says and to say, nope, I don't think that's what's best for this situation for me. I know better. And as soon as we make that decision to not believe Jesus, we lead ourselves to start acting like outsiders. To, we lead ourselves eventually to the extreme of denying that we are even a follower of Jesus. And so I encourage you to look at Peter here and to look at the example of a child and say, what is it in my heart that I am choosing not to believe what Jesus has said about it? Where's my heart of unbelief? And how can I come to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to believe that your way is best. Now, what you have said is true. How can I be an insider and follow um, you and believe what you say? And so if you're one of those outsiders today, which uh, would mean that maybe you're saved and you're acting like an outsider because you've chosen to go against God's way for you. That's what Peter's done here, and there's hope for you, because we can come to Jesus for restoration because he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And so if you, if you feel in your heart that a spirit of unbelief, come to Jesus today and trust him, and he will forgive you. Repent of your sins, and he'll, he'll help you to acknowledge your unbelief, to trust in the gospel, to trust that God's way is the best way, and he'll help you move forward in life to walk with him, and to believe in him. And so if you have a heart of unbelief, uh, come to Jesus today and ask for his help. And so at the very moment that Peter, remember these stories are parallel, at the very moment that Peter is denying his Savior, Jesus is saying, well, why don't you go ask one of my disciples? They know what my teaching is. And so look at those verses with me. In verse 19 it says, The high priest then asked Jesus, about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet, and in secret I have said nothing. And so we don't have the high priest question recorded for us, but it says that he was questioned about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus admits, he says, I don't know why you're asking me this like it's been a a secret. I've been teaching this openly. I've been teaching it in in your places, in the synagogues, in the temple. Like, this wasn't secret, this was done openly, and uh, it's widely known what my teaching is. And in verse 21 it says, Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And so, the reader is meant to, to hear these words of Jesus and to acknowledge that these two events are happening, happening in the same time frame. And that as Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is saying, yeah, why don't you ask those who have heard me? Because they know what I've said and they'll tell you who I am. They'll, they'll testify to my identity uh, that I am innocent. I have not done anything wrong and I, I am clean of this. I, I am not the guilty party. And at the same time, that Jesus is saying, go and ask them, uh, his disciple Peter is saying, nope, I don't know him. I don't know Jesus. I'm not one of his followers. 
And so the response of Jesus here is not looked kindly upon. It says that the officer who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? And so you kind of see this conflict happening here between the Jesus and the high priest as he's on trial. And Jesus answered in verse 23, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And so Jesus answered, asks another question here. And then it's kind of concluded in verse 24 when it says, Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so as we look down through here, we, we see this confusion about the high priest and who's in charge of this trial. And I want to submit to you that in this trial, Jesus is the one in charge. He's the one leading the progression of the, child, of the trial. So as you look down through there, We don't have any of the speech recorded of the high priest. We have two questions that come from Jesus. Um, And as you look down through that, mostly the recorded speech is of Jesus. And we see down through there that Jesus is um, is the one directing this trial. And he's the one that struck, and he's the one that asks another question after that. And so I want to, to point out that I don't think... I think the writer's pointing out that Caiaphas isn't the true high priest, and I don't think Annas is the true high priest. I think Jesus is the true high priest, and I think he's conducting his own trial. He's he's leading the discussion. He's the one asking the questions. He's the one in control of this trial. So even as Jesus has allowed himself to be bound and arrested, even as he goes forward to trial, he's the one in charge. He's the one leading the proceedings to his own death. And the cool thing about this, that Jesus has all authority as the true high priest, the really cool thing about this is that who is the one who offers the sacrifice um, in, in in a sacrifice? It's the priest. And so Jesus is actually offering himself. He is the lamb. He's the priest offering himself on the altar of the cross for our sins. And so... From the previous section, we see it continue here that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is the one leading this trial. And as we look at the situation of the Jewish high priests, they don't know who's the high priest. They have the dad who's a high priest, the five sons who's a high priest, the son-in-law who's a high priest. And the, the reader's left wondering, well, who in the world is the high priest? And the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. And he came as the lamb to offer himself on the altar for our sins. He took upon himself the priestly role to offer himself. Okay, And this is just a beautiful picture for our lives today even. And so if you're here on Wednesday, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7 where it discusses Christ's intercessory work for us um, as our great high priest. And we know also in Hebrews chapter 4, that Jesus, it talks about how he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And now we can boldly approach the throne of grace that we might find help in our time of need. And so the fact that we see Jesus here acting as the high priest and, you know, all these other guys are just hypocrites. They're, they're, They're fakes. And Jesus comes forward as the true high priest he is still functioning as our true high priest today. He still is the one that, through belief in him, gives us access boldly to the Father's throne to receive help. 
And so as we think about our failures and our unbelief, what's the response? The response is to come to Jesus because he restores us. Yes, he's the lamb who takes away our sin, but he's also the high priest who gives us access to the Father. We can come to God because of our union with the high priest. And Hebrews 4 talks about how we can have help in our time of need. And so as we think about the hour of trial with Peter and all the things going on, we understand that in our own lives, we're going to face things that will make us question if we really believe the words of Jesus. And we'll have that that doubt and that unbelief rising up. And we have to say, Lord, I know that through Jesus' death and resurrection, I have help from your throne because of my union with Christ. Please help me. And it says that we have access to the Father. And that's just amazing that we have that through our true high priest. And he has all authority to help us. And so as I think about you know, access and things like that, last year I was able to go to a disc golf tournament. I'm one of those people that likes disc golf. So there's a few of you out there I know, but not everybody loves it. And we got to go and watch like the, the Tiger Woods of disc golf. Okay, His name's Paul Macbeth. And I remember as we were driving up, he was practicing in a field, just like throwing some practice throws. And in my mind, this is like, oh, there's Paul Macbeth. You know, like, there he is. And so the way we got to go to this tournament was my brother-in-law had a connection where we got free tickets, actually, um, to be able to go to this tournament. And so we didn't have any, like, documentation that we had tickets. It was just that our names were supposed to be on the roll when we pulled in and it was supposed to work. So there's this little apprehension as we pulled up that we just drove five hours to Peoria, Illinois, and maybe we're not going to get to go in, you know. And so we pull up and, you know, we tell them our names and she's like, oh, yep, I got you. And she handed us our admission passes. And so we got to go in and it was really cool. It was free. You know, I was just like, I, great, this is awesome. And we got a free shirt and some free discs. And for me, this is like, I don't know, whatever your, your exciting thing you do is, uh, it would be like that for you, okay? So if you really like golf, it'd be like Tiger Woods. If you like basketball, it'd be like seeing LeBron James. So... Okay, this is what's happening in my mind. And so we're walking up, and we have our passes, and we got our free stuff, and we're just so excited. And the rule was is that you could pick one group of four players to follow for the whole round and watch all their throws. And so uh, we got to do that, and it was really hot, and we were dehydrated, and it was kind of terrible, but wonderful. But we got the passes. We had the passes, and we got to go and watch the players, and it didn't cost me anything. And so that's kind of what uh, our salvation and Christ's high priestly role is like. We didn't have to pay anything. It was free. Jesus gives it to us. And we have a pass. I don't want to be flippant with that. But Jesus gives us full access to the Father because of what he's done as the great high priest. And so I encourage you to, to kind of mull that over in your mind and think about the ramifications for your life to have full access to God to boldly come before him and ask for help in your time of need. And so remember, remember that especially, that Jesus, he still helps us. He, he provided salvation, but he also provides a way for ongoing help, for ongoing grace, for ongoing mercy, for ongoing forgiveness, and he doesn't leave us stranded in this life. He's given us access to the Father to have help. And so as you go through life, as you face hard things, as you're tempted to have unbelief and to fail, 
Run to the Father. You have full access to his throne because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I encourage you to come to Jesus, your great high priest, and let him restore you. And so as we, as we work through this still, we see through here that Jesus is the true high priest. He's the lamb. And now we go back to Peter in verse 25. We pick Peter back up right where we left him off. And remember, these are, these are two parallel events. They're happening at the same time, even though we're reading them at different times. And as we look at this, note that the author in verse 25 again points out Peter's location. Okay? Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. So again, Peter's pointed out where he's at. He's not with Jesus. He's still acting like an outsider. He's still not there with him. Therefore, they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And so this is the the true end of our unbelief is to eventually go to the point of denying that we even know Jesus. And so we have to see our unbelief and acknowledge it and ask the Lord for help. And so here Peter is. He's still standing with the opposition, still warming himself at the charcoal fire, and still denying Jesus because of his heart of unbelief. And so we've seen him deny Jesus twice, and now there's one more question in verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And so remember where we started with Peter's questioning. He was, he was questioned by a girl, and he denied Jesus then. And so now I think we've come to the climax of the questioning of Peter. It's someone who visually saw Peter cut Malchus's ear off in the garden. And so if you're Peter now, and you're, you're on this train of unbelief and denying Jesus, and now there's an eyewitness that says, no, no, you, you are one of Jesus' followers, I saw you in the garden. I saw you cut uh, my relative's ear off. And so in, in Peter's shoes, this had to be the most fearful moment for him. He's not in a place where he can just run. If he gets caught, he's in the courtyard. He's stuck there. He's standing with the opposition who is ready to probably arrest him now, now that they're figuring out who he is. And he just continues in his heart of unbelief. And so what does Peter do in verse 27? It says, Peter then denied again. And so here Peter continues in his heart of unbelief. He doesn't believe. He fears for his life. And when Jesus was calling upon his followers to testify of his teaching, Peter was denying even a relationship with Jesus, that he was one of his followers. And so what should Peter do in this? What, how should he feel? Well, he should feel ashamed because he's given up on his Lord. He's given up on the teaching of Jesus. And we see that Jesus knew all about this. We see that in that last little mention there in verse 27. It says, immediately a rooster crowed. And you can imagine in Peter's mind the, the, the shame that would pour upon him as he thought about how he said, I won't deny you, Jesus. I'll go with you to the death. And then here he is, Jesus has said, nope, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And here Peter is living that out, and he just thinks back to that moment and says, oh no, I have let my Savior down. I have failed him in his trial as he goes to his death. And uh, we're not told what happens to Peter after this point, 
But we have to, to think back to Jesus' plan. Jesus knew that Peter would fail him. Jesus wasn't overly concerned about that. He said it matter-of-factly to Peter that this is going to happen. You're going to fail me. Because Jesus knew that in the heart of Peter was a heart of unbelief and that he would do this. But also in Jesus' mind, he knew that his plan would come true to die for Peter's failure. And so he, he can look at Peter and say, you know, it's going to be okay. I'm going to go and I'm going to pay for your failure on the cross. And so we see here that even while we are failing Jesus, he made a way to save us or to restore us if we're a believer. And so if you're an unbeliever, if, you've, if you're not a Christian, if you've never trusted in Christ for your uh, salvation, you need to do that. He's the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself to take away your sin. You need to come to him today and say, Lord, I'm a failure and I need forgiveness from you. And he'll forgive you. He provided a way for you to be forgiven. And he saved me. He's forgiven me. But as believers, on an ongoing basis, we continue to fail. We continue to disbelieve, to have that heart of unbelief, to say, no, I think my way is better this time, God. And when we do that, we're, we're failing God again. We're sinning against him. And we have to realize that Jesus knew Peter would fail, and he still went to the cross and paid for that failure. Jesus knows that we will fail, we'll continue to fail, and he still provided that way for us to be restored to him through forgiveness. And so I encourage you, if you're a believer and you know in your heart you say, yes, I, I'm choosing not to believe that this thing about what Jesus has said about me or about my life or about my family or about my work or about my church, whatever it might be, give it up. See that unbelief and say, Lord, this is failure before you to disbelieve you in this thing. But I know that you died for failures. And that Jesus right now, he's, he's standing before the Father, interceding on my behalf, saying, look at what I did. I died for that person. Please help them. Please restore them back to fellowship with us. And so we can have that, that communion again as a God and believer. And so as we think about Peter in this text, uh, we kind of leave him here hanging with this guilt in his mind of what he's done. It just cuts off and it says, uh, immediately a rooster crowed. And so what I want to encourage you about Peter is that in God's design, he has a plan for Peter, even in the book of John, that he'll reveal to us later. And I just want to give us a sneak peek of that. And so if you recall, when Peter was standing outside the gate, and then he was brought in and he was standing with the opponents, do you remember what he was standing warming himself on? By a charcoal fire, right? And so what we see here is that this is not the last charcoal fire that Peter will stand at. Right now he stands with the opponents of Jesus, but if you turn with me over to chapter 21 of John, we see in these verses another fire of coals. So in verse 9, Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And so, as Peter has failed Jesus, Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. 
Jesus pursues the plan to save Peter, to pay for his failings, with the eventual plan of meeting Peter in person and restoring him. Restoring the one who at his hour of need denied him, acted like an outsider, opposed him, stood with the opposition. And here Jesus is. He died for his sins, and then he comes to Peter, and he restores that. And many of you are familiar that he says, do you love me, Peter? And he talks about feeding, feeding his lambs. And so G- the plan for Peter is not over. We, we leave him hanging in our text, but Jesus' plan is full. His plan is full enough to pay for the sins of Peter and to restore his fellowship with Peter. And we know that Peter goes on to trust Christ and to walk with him in fellowship and help with the establishment of the church. And so, I don't know where you're at in your failings today, but there's hope for you. There's, there's hope because Jesus has made a way for you to be restored to fellowship with him. So look down inside of your heart. Look at the unbelief. And yeah, we should be ashamed because um, as believers, uh, we shouldn't disbelieve Jesus. We should believe in him. But when we see that, we, we can remember the good news. Remember that Jesus is the lamb who died on the cross for our sins, and he's still acting as our great high priest to get us help from the Father. He has full authority to grant us all the blessings and riches of grace uh, that are available to us through him. And so come to him and ask him for help. Come to him and ask him for forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. Remember back to 1 John. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I think back to, you know, my dad and I working on things and it's easy to just, you know, cover, cover up the little mistakes and ignore, ignore that, you know, can't see it from my house. But that's not the way we should treat our walk with the Lord. We should come to him and say, yes, Lord, I, I have sinned. Please forgive me. And he will forgive us. It's guaranteed because of what Jesus has already done. And so come to him today and trust in him and uh, walk with him and ask him for help every day. He's there to help you. He lives to intercede on your behalf. So come to Jesus and trust him and he will restore you and help you um, every step of the way. Thank you for your good attention. I'll pray and then we can be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who freely gave himself up to provide us forgiveness of sins and access to your grace and help and relationship with you. And we pray that you would help us to see our hearts of unbelief and to bring that before you and ask you to help our unbelief. And that you would help us to trust your way is best and that we would walk in fellowship with you. And when we do fail, that we would come to Christ for forgiveness. We just thank you so much for the way that he has made for us and ask for your help to walk in fellowship with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.